The Bible, Spiritual Formation, and Third Eye Seeing. We're asking an actual pastor on this week's Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. Only this week, I won't be answering your questions. I'll be discussing your questions with my good friend and pastor from Tallahassee, Florida, Betsy Willette Zierden, who's a United Methodist pastor and, well, one of my best friends. So, instead of me rambling in the intro, what do you say? Let's get it started. Okay, before we get to the good stuff, I do want to remind you that here in fall, there are a few more chances for us to meet up in person and turn this podcast relationship into an actual friendship. So uh, I'd love to see you at Evolving Faith in Montreat, North Carolina, October 26th and 27th. That's an event hosted by Sarah Bessie and Rachel Held Evans and is full of, honestly, it's like a who's who list of my favorite thinkers, theologians, speakers, etc. So it's sold out if you don't have a ticket. You can't really come, but I guess I'm just bragging for the people who do have tickets. And uh, November 3rd and 4th at the First Congregational Church of Christ in Greeley, Colorado, I'm doing a conference on contemplative spirituality and Christianity. That's November 3rd and 4th in Greeley. And then the Liturgist Gathering is going to be in Minneapolis, November 16th and 17th, and in Nashville, November 30th through December 1st. Of course, I'll we'll have more events to talk about uh, after that, maybe in the next few weeks. But let's not waste any more time with me rambling. I am so excited for those of you who have not heard before who I'm about to talk to. Uh, if you've read Finding God in the Waves, I have a, a chapter in that book called Take Me to Church, where I talk about how the church broke my heart and how the church also helped heal it. And I can't think of any person more instrumental in. Gosh, me finding the church again, uh, me discovering uh, that mysticism was acceptable and even orthodox within the Christian movement. Truly a spiritual giant in my life and a dear friend. <laughs> I'm serious. Everybody, this okay. is this is Betsy. <clears throat> giant that I am. <laughs> <laughs> you are spiritually and psychologically. All right. Well, I appreciate that. I have a book uh, a friend of mine wrote called Fierce about women in the Bible. And uh, you're you're properly fierce. Well, thank you. <laughs> Some of my congregation members don't think so, <laughs> but I'm going to get back and show them how fierce I can be. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So here's how, here's how this episode works. We have asked um, some of the patrons to submit questions for Betsy. Kind of, I said, uh, in the areas of spiritual formation, spiritual direction, and how the church can do its best work today. But you know, I don't know where they actually took these questions. So we'll just have to see how it goes. So we'll just start right at the top uh, with Erin, who had a question. And she asked, how would you best advise someone to start reading Scripture again after taking a long time off to detox? I feel ready, but then get overwhelmed when trying to start. And then we've got a same here comment right after that from Jesse. I would suggest that you learn Lexio Divina, which is a different way of reading Scripture. Um 
I don't know if you've tried it before, but it, it's really reading scripture contemplatively, just opening your Bible. You can do a, a gospel chapter, and but you let the word catch you, and then you just stay there. Um, I think some of the reasons we stop reading the Bible is we're told to do, you know, every day read a chapter from the old, from the new, and from the Psalms, or maybe you've had a read through the Bible in a year Bible. And while they have value, they can also be really just dis- dis- kind of discouraging. Oh, I, I you know, I miss, I missed all of Kings. I'm confessing, I really did <laughs> miss First and Second Kings every time I've attempted it. Um, but I found that the the Scripture is rich and meaningful, and it speaks to our hearts, our minds, our lives when we prayerfully and with intention approach the Scripture as a sacred book that connects us to who we are, sacred beings, and to who God is. It's interesting when you talk about the Lexio because that became my one of my favorite types of meditation. Mm-hmm. So I almost don't even put it in the reading box in my mind, although I guess I certainly am reading. Yeah. But it's a, it's a radically different um, encounter with the text. <clears throat> exactly. And I think if you have um, stayed away from the Bible and you're trying to detox from the Bible, it could be that you have been taught to read it a specific way with specific interpretations around certain uh, chapters, lessons, etc. cetera. Uh, but invite the Spirit to show you new ways, uh, show you new interpretations, uh, and trust that that will happen. And I, you know, I really believe it will. I don't feel like a forensic scientist during the Lexio. A lot of times if I just study the Bible, right. it turns into this fact-finding journey. Well, what really happened historically here? Well, that surely this, you know, this exodus at this scale over 40 years in this narrow part of the desert is impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I sit with that text contemplatively, the whole fact interrogation just kind of fades away yeah. well, and you the, find other messages. The other way to read it, and you kind of alluded to it, uh, remember their stories. Hmm. And um, I had a seminary professor that wrote a book called God Gave Us Stories. And remember, these are some of these are historical stories, but they're still stories. So what can you learn from a story? What can you learn from a parable? Uh, approach the Bible like that, hmm. and that might be refreshing. Right on. Okay, so now we have a question from Brandon, and Brandon said, I live in a town with really no open and affirming congregations. What advice do you have for me in seeking a spiritual home? For context, it's a small town in Tennessee, and I'm married and straight, and I have a young daughter. I am passionate about LGBTQ equality. I like community, but there's no community here that shares my values. Mostly, we have been staying at home. And you can see uh, a lot of people liked this question. So Brandon is definitely not alone in what he's feeling. Well, first of all, I just feel sad. I feel sad when I I sense in your question your desire for community, um, your love of God, and your love of what church means or what spiritual community means. And I feel sad because there is no such a place um, in your town. And I know that Mike's told me many times that this is the case with some of the people that come to the liturgist gatherings. So uh, all I could say is find find two other people or two other families that have similar views and gather on a Sunday afternoon 
and immerse yourself in scripture, sing songs with your children, uh, do spiritual art, just create your own space that is uh, good for you and good for your family. I agree. I know. I, I know you're doing something similar. I like the institutional church. I'm kind of rare hosting these two podcasts and having huge numbers of listeners who don't like the institutional church like I do. Yeah. But I I see the church in exile as John Shelby Spawn calls it, or the diaspora church as others have called it, as an equally valid expression of Christianity. I also thought what you said last night um, at your Ask Science uh, Mike event. Which they'll know this as last week's episode. Okay. Well, anyway, the the young woman who asked about um, children in Sunday school, and your answer to her was so beautiful. The other thing I would say, Brandon, is um, you don't have to entirely throw the baby out with the bathwater. If there's a place where you enjoy the singing or the band um, and you can go and enjoy that part and leave, leave early. Or if the Sunday school is good there and you want your children to be exposed to the stories of the Bible and the songs of the Bible, you know, start there. I, I am on one of my Facebook friends who who I think is one of your listeners posted something about uh, his reticence to enroll his four-year-old in a faith-based preschool because of some of the trauma and baggage that he carried. And, and, and it was so poignant that um, he said what he did enjoy was hearing his little guy sing songs, Christian songs. And as, as they drove home, uh, he was asked, Daddy, will you sing with me? What do you want to sing? Jesus loves me. Mm. And the two of them saying, Jesus loves me, I'm going to cry. Jesus loves me on the way home. Yeah. And the dad found himself crying. So what is that about? Maybe... You know, you have to approach faith as the innocent with the innocence of a child, which means you you don't you act like you don't understand the other stuff and just enjoy the stuff you do. Some of the most progressive friends I have, one couple in particular here in LA, they go to church with their children and they go to like super conservative evangelical mega churches uh-huh. for the worship period. And then they leave. And then they leave. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I get it. You know, I um, I went to Jen Hatmaker's church in Austin, Texas, which is um, the structure of the service and the style of worship is very mm-hmm. evangelical. But the worship leader that Sunday, I don't know if it's every Sunday, was a lesbian. And the theology was, was, was progressive and forward thinking and open. Mm-hmm. So it was like this very evangelical structure, only with ways of talking about God and Christ that I understood and resonated a lot, and I didn't see as harmful. Mm-hmm. But then to hear a lesbian sing some of those Hillsong songs I used to sing in the Baptist church, I just wept. Right. It was so right. redemptive. So there's something about being able to redeem those forms sometimes that's uh-huh. really healing well and if there's not hatred being spewed from the pulpit um and you can get along with the teaching a uh, uh, general teaching of a church you may be surprised that the pastor of that church may be more affirming than he lets on or she lets on um but in a small town 
like you live in, it's it's not easy to come out <laughs> as a pastor about your views, and it's getting harder all the time. A shocking number of publicly known conservative leaders have talked to me in private about how different their views on marriage and their theology in general is, right. and they feel trapped. It's really it's it's and afraid. Yeah, yeah, makes us sick and and fat. <laughs> well, I'm healthy and fat, so I'm I'm out in the open. So Alan had two questions. We're going to allow two questions here, although the, Roger had a bunch of questions, but they, we might be able to lightning round them. Uh, but Alan, here's a couple. One, how can we pastors, especially bivocational ones, help cultivate our own spiritual life? That's a really good question. Well, I think one of the most important things is that you broaden your view of what spiritual life is. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you enjoy doing? I mean, uh, do you love hiking? Hiking in the woods is a spiritual practice. Um, do you like playing with your children? In other words, uh, embrace all of life as spiritual growth. Um, be it and attentive to the beauty around you. I, I I don't know that we need to schedule in an hour for quiet time. I think that's some some old thinking that has not been necessarily helpful uh, because it it limits our understanding of our spiritual care and spiritual well-being and spiritual practice. So do you really like a certain band that blesses you? Put put the music on that uh, makes you feel close to God. Simple things. For me, that's Cardi B. <laughs> You've played it a lot. You've played it a lot this week. Endlessly. Well, you played her a lot, I should say. It's a tough one, but embrace every moment. Make mm. sure you spend time with friends. Make every meal around the dinner table, whenever you get to have dinner together, make that a, a sacred time of encouragement for yourself and those around the table. As soon as we hit stop on this podcast, Betsy and I are going to cultivate our spiritual lives yes, we with are. some Pinot Noir and a, and some cheese. Yeah, <laughs> so, a, a cheese board. <laughs> uh, and then, so his second question kind of tails off that. What is the best way we pastors can help our congregants cultivate their spiritual lives well i i would say a similar thing that i just said i i can remember um a parishioner years ago she came to me and said i just can't pray and i've tried and i can't pray and i just i'm such a she felt really down on herself like i i i, I can't believe i could even call myself a christian I, uh, but i knew this woman and I, and i told her i said you know what i know that when you stand at the sink and and wash dishes and look out the window that you are noticing everything out there. I know how much you love your roses. I know how much you love your children. When you pay attention to the things you love, you are praying. You're praying. Mm. You're you're growing in your spirit. You're embracing the creation that God has given you to enjoy. We have just really messed up people's understanding of spiritual growth. Mm. Mm. We've limited it so much to a Bible or a devotional or a church. While all of those things are helpful, they're just not enough if you really, really want to know the greater, bigger, cosmic Christ who encompasses everything. Yeah, with, with it's like presence. confusing a ladder with the view. You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, I'm a Jesus person. There's no doubt about it. But I believe that Jesus was there creating. Right? Mm-hmm. So. 
Mm-hmm. All right, Roger has got a real lightning round for you. So I'm just going to fire these off. And I assume that these questions were specifically for Betsy, so I'm not going to answer them. <laughs> Thanks. Question one, what are you currently reading for fun? Okay, I confess. So I've been on a sabbatical, and I read the entire Crazy a uh, Crazy Rich Asians trilogy. I didn't even know it was a trilogy. I didn't know there was a trilogy. Oh, my god! And, and the first one's a movie. And I had Which so, I still haven't seen. So I, so I don't read a lot of fiction. And I read, I don't know, a dozen books on fiction this summer. Right on. What are you learning the most from? Well, certainly he doesn't mean those books, does he? <laughs> <laughs> it may be. Well, I, I it's you. From, what do you think? from those books and the movie, I learned that the best dumplings on the face of the earth are found in Singapore or... Glendale, California, where we ate the other That's night. True. Din Tai Fung. If you ever want to run into Science Mike, Din Tai Fung in Glendale is probably your best chance. Um, all right. Who are you learning from that, in principle, you are not in agreement with? Oh, wow. That's a good question. That's a really good question. Hmm. Well, I'm on something called the God Squad, which is an interfaith clergy panel. And um, we have seven programs a year in our community. And we discuss hot button issues um, from our faith perspectives. And I, I think one of the times where I I didn't lose it, but I got passionate. I am passionately against the death penalty. And my uh, Southern Baptist colleague who is sitting next to me was for the death penalty. And in my opinion, misquoting scripture. Mm. Um, so what did I learn from that? I learned you can be passionately against your buddy. I mean, like I'm really, I, I was, I was mad mm-hmm. because I couldn't believe that he was using the scripture to justify killing people. I mean, I was, okay. So what did I learn from that? I learned that when the discussion was over, I took a deep breath. <sighs> I said, Josh, I will never be convinced of your position, but I love you. Mm. And I do. Mm. And we went on to the next month to discuss something that we did have agreement in. What are your unquestioned answers and why? Wow, I don't even understand the question. What are what are a con- what's a conviction you hold that is unshakable or unquestionable, I think? Oh. Okay, well, I guess that's really easy. God is love. God is love. Okay. If it's not loving, it's not God. Why? Because God is love. Okay. Here's a question I can answer. Are your sermons available to listen to online or via podcast? And Brett already answered. <laughs> and you can find Betsy's sermons at goodsamumc.podbean.com, which wow, I will I'm, also link in the show I notes can't believe on it. I, can't, I can't believe people are listening out there. I'm, <laughs> I'm grateful. Thank you. And Brett says others too, but Betsy's are in there. Okay. Uh, last question. This one is important. Marvel or DC? Be careful uh, not to trivialize this one with this author. I know. <laughs> Marvel, but don't ask me why. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I'm also Marvel, with the exception of Batman, who I think is the greatest of all. All right, Todd, I love you. You sent a lot of questions, so I'm going to scan them real quick and pick one, which is tough because you ask good questions. Oh, but gosh, this one is really good, Todd. 
How can we embody love within a faith community context if we ourselves battle with conditions like depression, anxiety, trauma, or autism, which make it difficult to perceive the love which others believe they are giving, which is in turn draining in its sense of always giving but not receiving? That's, there's a lot there about mental health and the church. And there's more than our one culture. There's actually one more, more than one question there. Mm-hmm. Um, how can we embody love yeah. within a faith community if we ourselves battle with conditions that make it difficult to perceive love? Yeah. So what makes what, I understand? I, I mean, yeah. so I would say the the main focus should be on embodying love and not necessarily measuring uh, your ability to feel the love of others, um, because. If, if if you can't perceive their love, then you're not going to be able to. But that doesn't mean you you personally cannot embody love. You embody love by being present, as present as you can. You be, embody love by uh, caring for other people. Again, last night, you told the atheist that he was more like Jesus than most Christians because hmm. um, he taught autistic children in a Christian school where the, he didn't believe anything they believed. Hmm. Um, embodying love is harder when you're anxious and depressed and not able to get out of bed is really hard. But the fact that um, you make an effort, which an effort could be simply to say to someone, I really need help or I don't feel love or your presence is draining and I'm sorry. It comes back to being honest about where you are and what you're feeling and surrounding yourself with at least one or two people that let you feel how you feel. I mean, the most draining thing of all is to be around uh, people that want to cheer you up when you just want someone to sit in the sadness with you. Um, Sitting in the sadness with someone is embodying love. Uh, Invite that and and offer yourself to others in the same way. Hmm. All right, here we go. Deep into the pool. You ready? Oh, you're the one doing seminars on this stuff. Jesse said, what is third eye seeing? I, I don't mind taking a swing at that one. (laughs) <laughs> what is contemplation? What is solitude? Is there a helpful definition for these? Or can you really only understand them through practice and experience? I want to learn more about them. They resonate with me, but I'm not sure to what extent I already practice them or what direction I need to go in to pursue them more. Gosh. What, well, I'll, I'll do a simple answer. Yeah, I love You it. can go into the, the, deep, the deep end. So a simple answer, what is contemplation? For me, contemplation is simply being still and quiet with intention. And that seems so simple that people go, no, 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 there must be more to it. Well, with intention might be a word uh, that helps to center you. With intention may be focusing on something in nature and just really, really giving it your full attention. Um, my friend, who's one of the God Squad members, uh, Father Tim, Catholic priest, uh, he was converted, came to know Christ through focusing on the Eucharist, focusing on the host. Mm. Contemplation is being still and attentive. Solitude, it's different than being alone. I think all of your questions have to do with Um, intention and awareness. Mm -hmm. Solitude is being alone because you choose to be alone and letting that aloneness envelop you with 
good energy, rest, and um, the presence of God. Mm. Third eye seeing. Well, when you meditate or when you uh, practice contemplation, it's the front part of your brain in between your two eyes that lights up. But before they knew that, um, mystics uh, felt that. We literally have a third eye as well. The, uh, the pineal gland in your brain started out as an eye, evolutionarily speaking, uh, which, of course, ancient mystics had no idea that that was the case. Kind of to, to dovetail off Betsy's idea on contemplation, a meditation I did recently was a, a quote from Ram Das, which was, I am loving awareness. Anything you're aware of, you love. And so I did a meditation, I guess kind of a cross between a centering prayer meditation, which you'd have a simple idea that you're focusing on or a single image and a mantra where you repeat something. So I didn't necessarily just repeat that phrase over and over, but I just rested on that phrase and repeated it as necessary until it became true. Where anything I became aware of, I loved. And on this desk, on your desk is a book right now that says, Words Can Change Your Brain. Hmm. Right. And so in that practice, which I was in solitude, which meant I was in silence by myself, not with my smartphone, not with distractions, but with intention and with presence, I was contemplating, sitting in contemplation with this phrase, and it led me to a place that in an unguided way, anything that caught my attention with my eyes closed that I thought of I loved. And then when I opened my eyes, I loved everything I saw in the room. And then third eye seeing, I don't really have any definition for that. Uh, I know the first time it happened to me experientially, I can only speak for myself here, but it's basically uh, with your eyes closed, you look above your plane of vision and you see things. (laughs) (laughs) And it only happens... um, I did have kind of third eye experiences uh, before I ever tried any psychedelics. I, they're definitely easy to have if you are on any kind of a psychedelic dosage. I did like a two-hour mantra meditation was how I, the first time I had a, a third eye vision. And, and also, I think these questions could be answered differently um, by different people. You know, Absolutely. I, 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 the, there would be some connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if I ask my Hindu friend what is third eye seeing, their definition would be similar to what you said, um, but with some added, you know, in, insight. Yes, because it's more part of their language. Yes, and, that, well, and, and that's and why I said I, I can only speak for me. Right. Like right. when you get into mysticism and contemplation, you're going to have experiences that you can't ever really articulate to somebody else. Well, I remember when I first learned to do centering prayer, I was at the Monastery of the Holy Spirit in Conyers, Georgia. And uh, we were I was taking sort of an introductory course uh, with some of the monks there and a woman who was a psychologist or counselor. And she said, just uh, be aware that when you begin contemplation, your life might blow up mm. and you might need a counselor. And I'm like, what? I thought it was make, supposed to make me more peaceful. Well, it makes you more aware. Yeah. And eventually that leads to peace, but it also may lead to insights 
that are not comfortable. That happened to me. Like when I first started <laughs> contemplative spirituality, in a few months, I was like, I've found ultimate peace. Is this, am I enlightened or something? What has happened? I take everything in stride. I feel peace and contentment at all times. Oh, this is marvelous. And then I figured out I was in like the foyer of contemplation. <laughs> and I had just taken my coat off and it was nice. But as I moved deeper into contemplative practice, I learned more about myself. Not all of it pleasant. Exactly. And much of it, I figured out that there were rooms of my contemplative house that right. were very disordered and even dangerous. But a transformational process mm -hmm. that using a, a, a word that's familiar to church people leads to sanctification. Mm. Uh, it makes us holier mm. as we become whole. I'll be ready for this next question. Matthew's question is, what are the things that keep you coming back to church as a pastor? The children, the children for sure. Uh, them running to me and letting me sweep them up in my arms. Um, the teenagers that I once knew as children. This one makes me cry. <laughs> um, the acolytes, which have to be children, that stand at the back of the church and wait for me uh, with their little robes on and their candle lighters and wait for me with excitement and joy to carry the cross and the candles. And when I say the children, it really does include the reality that I've been able to be in one place for a long time. So it's, it's watching people grow in Christ. Um, people that are babies in their faith uh, or have been wounded by the church and they stumble in the door and they learn to accept Jesus as a little child and they shake off a lot of hurts and anger and bitterness. And I watch them from the pulpit sometimes and I'm preaching and I see an aura, an aura mm -hmm. of light around them. Mm. What keeps me coming back are the people and the stories and the ways I get to participate in their stories. Mm. All right. A little bit longer question here from Kate. I've started going to a church of the brethren this year, which I don't know what that is. Uh, Kate knows that's me. Science Mike saying, I don't know what church of the brethren <laughs> is where the former head pastor retired and was placed by an associate pastor, a younger woman. She wants our congregation to start becoming more involved in the community. Apparently, we used to be famous for our activism in our town during the civil rights era. But the past few head pastors have been more focused on denominational activities, so the outreach has fallen off. We've discussed various ways to help begin the process of helping people in our community, but we are worried about falling into a white savior trap since all but two families in our church are white. How can we help those around us without it becoming us saving people who have less privilege than us? Oh, what a beautiful question. It's a good question. And it's a question that um, is asked with awareness that you can really make some mistakes. Uh, you know, you can make some mistakes when you try to be a savior to someone. You can go in with arrogance and try to help them be become what you think they should be or their neighborhoods, uh, what you think they should be. And um, our congregation has certainly made some mistakes. We have a ministry to 
uh, Orange Avenue apartments, transitional housing, where we bring art lessons and dance and just basically we bring adult attention to kids after school, um, many of them that come home to an empty house. And we came there and told the folks there what we were going to do. And we worked with them. And I don't know that we did it right. And I don't even know if it's really working in the overall big picture. But I can tell you that the kids, they love to see us come. Hmm. And the, the kids will tell us, like, we don't want to do that. We want to do this. The kids appreciate us coming. So once again, let the little child lead you. Um, you have to have some sort of relationship with the, the neighborhood, the person of peace in that neighborhood uh, before you go anywhere. Uh, you certainly can swoop in and be offensive. And believe me, people in underserved neighborhoods, they are so used to people sweeping in. It doesn't change anything. Mm. Uh, they will they will come forward and receive uh, the goods that you bring with you um, with a smile and with grace. But they know you're not going to keep it up. They know you're not going to be there next week. So what we have tried to do is even when we're short on money and we can't hire teachers, we still show up. Mm. Just so they know that, nope, we're not going to be that um, that group that came in and really wanted you to change, but they didn't see you change quick enough, so they're out of there. Another thing that struck me the first time I visited Good Sam was that it was multi-ethnic. Yeah. And uh, I didn't know it at first because I got to know Betsy when Betsy had a vision for a multi-ethnic church that wasn't just a white church. She didn't just sit around and ask, why don't people of color attend? she actively recruited families of color into church leadership yeah, and put them on the platform <laughs> I did. and involved them in leadership, making major decisions. And oddly enough, that works better. Well, 12 years later, we're still multicultural. I mean, not, you know, there's always work to do and there's always room to grow, but yeah, I can remember distinctly, um, Randy Clay came to visit with his beautiful wife and uh, came a few times when we had just gotten started and, and I took him to lunch and I'm like, I really need you. I really need you in this church and I need you in le leadership. Mm. And he's, he's like, why? And I said, well, for one thing, you're articulate, uh, you're smart, you're, you are really dedicated to Christ and you're black. Yeah. And he goes, thank you for being honest. <laughs> I think Katina and I will come back. Wow. Yeah. You know? And he even told me, you may have heard this before, he even told me, okay, Good Samaritan's going to be my church. This is when he was my lay leader. He goes, when I asked him to be lay leader, which was a few years later, he said, Good Samaritan's my church and I'll be the lay leader. But just so you know, about every five or six weeks, I won't be there because I need a little black church. Yeah, I need to go back in my culture occasionally and worship in the way that I grew up. Yeah, I, I just, I think the honesty of that, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's it makes me joyful. Mm -hmm. Love Randy. Loved Randy. All right, Chris, your question, it sounds like you might be a behavioral ec economist, but we'll see. <laughs> what is the incentive for spiritual formation? The traditional fundamentalist answer is to avoid hell and to get to heaven. But I've come to see that as an unbiblical distortion. Is it even right to think in terms of getting something out of it when it comes to spiritual growth? Hmm. 
That's interesting. Super interesting. Well, I'm getting something out of sitting here with you. Mm. <laughs> I'm enjoying our your company and really enjoying answering these questions. I'm getting a, a something out of our visit. So getting something out of something is is not a bad thing at all. Mm. And regarding spiritual formation, uh, as some as a way to earn your way to heaven. Well, obviously she's or he has determined that that is an unbiblical distortion. So I would say the incentive for spiritual formation for me is to be uh, more present with you, mm. to be more present with God, to be more loving, you know, the fruit, the fruit of the spirit. I ask my congregation uh, occasionally, I'm like, how do you know if you're growing in Christ? Ask yourself a few simple questions. Are you more loving? Are you less judgmental? Are you kinder? Are you more patient with your husband and your children? And then it comes back to, are you more loving? As we grow in spirit, uh, as we grow in Christ, we're to reflect Christ. You know, the other night when I went to dinner uh, with Jenny and her friends, many of them from Baptist backgrounds, we started talking. I can't remember the context, uh, but... I quoted a scripture, sort of in fun, in jest to prove a point I was making. Again, I don't even remember the scripture. And she said to me, now, what what chapter and verse is that? And I said, I don't know. I'm not Baptist. <laughs> and they all like laughed their heads off because they were, in, it, I kind of wish I had been in the sense of memorizing scripture. But the point is, spiritual formation is about forming your heart. Mm-hmm. I like to say I, with spiritual formation, I came for the neurological benefits. I stayed for the improved life and relationships. There you go. There you go. It was a real nerdy way to And go. what is spiritual formation? You know? Yeah. Anything that forms you. And so um, my, one of my professors used to say, the things in your life and the choices you're making, are they deforming you or are they forming you? There are things that deform us, and there are things that form us. I want the choices I make to form me. So all things are spiritual formation because we are spirit in truth. Okay, Melissa, who looks like she's another Methodist, asks, this is probably too inside baseball, I know, but how do you deal with the controversy in the United Methodist Church right now? What helps you have hope? Do you ever think about leaving? And if not, what would the line in the sand be for you? Mm. I'm in a deep Southern UMC church that is considered progressive for our city, but the congregation is pretty evenly split between full-on LGBTQIA affirmation and non-affirming. So I see the controversy at work every week. It does not feel to me like the progressive stance is winning just that it's tolerated and allowed to stay. And for those of you listening who don't know, I as a Methodist have been watching closely a denominational discussion about whether Methodists uh, affirm same-sex marriages or not, and whether uh, non-celibate gay and queer persons can serve as clergy in the United Methodist Church. Well, oh, it's a tough one. I um, 
honestly, Good Samaritan is is not an ultrally progressive church. We've always tried to hold both ends to the middle. Um, I believe in unity. I believe that uh, people with differing opinions help one another grow in Christ and grow as people. Um, it was easy for a while. It's getting harder. It's getting harder. When uh, the pastoral intern, a young um, married lesbian woman, was allowed to preach at Good Samaritan with my encouragement and with great joy. I, I, I mean, she was awesome. In fact, I think we got 900 hits on our on our uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. Only one person has had more than that. <laughs> that would be Science Mike with 1,400. Um, anyway, she did a beautiful job. Uh, she served communion with me. There was no overt uh, pushback, but people left quietly. And some of most of them didn't tell me why. And it's heartbreaking. Um, but it's not just the LGBTQ um, affirmation. People are, are splitting over all sorts of issues, um, over gun control, ugh, over global warming. I'm exhausted. Mm. I'm exhausted. I don't know what's going to happen. Supposedly February will know more. Likely nothing's going to happen. Uh, where would I draw a line in the sand? You know, I'm asking myself that. And what I've told myself is that I'm going to give I'm going to give it till the end of February and then the rest of this year to see what happens. And then I'll have to me and God will have to be together on um, some quiet place as I figure it out. I'm, I'm heartbroken. I'm for full inclusion. Mm. But I'm also aware that the older members of my church are struggling still. You know, they had just begun to embrace uh, language of gay Christian, and now it's become queer Christian. Now, that's hard for them. <laughs> so I also don't want to be callous and hard-hearted because I believe I can bring people along, bring people along in love. Because if you're growing in love, you will be more inclusive. Mm. Mm. I get asked this a lot, just as a Methodist, and I cheat by saying, "Well, I'm in California." <laughs> yeah, and in California, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. But if, if, but if you were in Texas, it'd be the opposite. Yeah, right. Opposite stand. <laughs> so I like to say, I, uh, in order to remain a Methodist. I moved to California. <laughs> um, uh, what's the name of your bishop here? But see, I love my bishop. I love my bishop, Ken Carter. He is trying. Yeah, Bishop Carter's amazing. Oh, he's tr- and, the, and I guess that's why one reason I stay hmm. is because here's a hopeful man that believes that uh, we need to understand that there will always be varying viewpoints on all sorts of things. And staying together in love under under the lordship of Christ may yeah. bring us forward in a way that splitting wouldn't. Uh, yeah. So that I've I've been waiting myself as a Methodist to kind of see how it goes. It's actually kind of delayed me. Um, the church I attend here, First United Methodist Pasadena, kind of reached out to see if I wanted to do like a think about membership luncheon, uh-huh. and I kind of. L- lean back in a way I didn't expect, but part of it is I kind of want to see where things go in February. Right. To see if maybe I don't not with all love and support for the UMC, if maybe I'd be a better Episcopal. Yeah. Right. No. <laughs> um just based on because I there's so many 
gay, lesbian, and queer listeners. To and even if there weren't, uh, it's just that, that I, I feel very strongly uh, that those those folks are beloved by God. And so, like Betsy, I for usually who sent my emails, and I've kind of emailed one on one right now. Um, and then some of you asked why I don't lean into the denominational discussion as a public figure. Mm-hmm. And the reason I don't is I feel beyond the kind of uh, private outreach and advocacy that I do, the hashtag storm I would bring along with me would be less helpful than helpful. So I think I don't think there's any question that anyone who's in leadership in the Methodist Church who knows who I am, they're not going... I wonder where Science Mike stands on right. same-sex marriage and and queer clergy, but uh, I I I specifically I don't get on Facebook a lot. Mm-hmm. When I do, one of the things I do is go to Bishop Carter's personal Facebook oh, profile and just read the posts because the work he's doing to not give up on justice while trying to hold everyone in community is maybe impossible but incredible and inspiring his, his the what he's doing to try to create peace and reconciliation and understanding mm-hmm. exceeds anything i've ever done in my life well you know i traveled to northern ireland with bishop carter just a year ago this month and uh we were there with gary mason who was instrumental in talking through the Good Friday Agreement between the Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland. And what we learned is that peace comes through compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have to give up something to get something, but the end result was peace. Uh, not necessarily peace like, you're my brother, you know, let's hang out, although that did happen, we saw that. But the bombing stopped, mm-hmm. and I, and so the way forward, it, uh, one of the things that's being presented is let's let let's let pastors decide, and follow their conscience, and that sounds like freedom to me, and I think that freedom is really important mm. for people in order to uh, remain or to keep their integrity. Mm. All right. Dang, those were hard. Those were hard. They hit close to home, like really close to home. I thought, I thought it <laughs> like would. I live across the street from the church. That's thought, how close to I home. Thought, I was like, ooh, can we even do this with? But Betsy thank you for asking those questions. Annalise said, "I've been in church for most of the last twenty-nine years. I don't remember ever hearing God's voice or feeling His presence. I've watched for years as people have all these spiritual experiences around me, Aww. but I just feel left out." Am I doing something wrong? What should I do? Wow. See, I would love to speak to her personally and spend an hour with her. That's what spiritual direction really is, is having a spiritual companion. And I I I get I venture to guess Annalise has had am I allowed to say her name? Yeah, you just, yeah, did. just the okay. Person. Hey Annalise. Uh, I, I venture to guess she's actually had more experiences with God than she realizes it. She just isn't attributing them to God. Mm. Uh, have you ever enjoyed a beautiful day and felt the breeze against your cheek and mm. just felt joyful because God had made this creation? And maybe God wasn't even in the equation. You just felt 
wonderful. I did today when I walked out of your <laughs> out onto your patio. I'm like, whoa, this weather, California weather. But that's God. That's that's God's presence. Now, does that that's God's provenient grace, as we would say in our Wesleyan theology. It's one way God reaches to us. Before we could say his name, before we pray, we are recipients of God's presence and God's goodness. And yet we sometimes don't attribute those things or count them as spiritual. But they are. Mm. A really good meal. Something. Have you ever savored something so delicious that it just made you feel content? Mm. Contentment is an experience with a God who created you to feel content. So, man, I'd love to talk to you more. It sounds like Annalise might be wondering specifically about like charismatic experiences, ecstatic experience and mystical experiences. And I think something I hear that's valuable and wise in what Betsy's saying is don't conflate those three types of spiritual experiences with all possible spiritual experiences. Um, are you talking about like being slain in the spirit or? Well, I mean, like, uh, you know, uh, sure. That's one I've yeah. never had. There's ecstatic slain in the spirit, speaking in tongues, those kinds of things. Um, I, 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 I so badly want to be slain in the spirit. <laughs> I, there was some the revival happening in Pensacola years ago. And I went over there, I brought my kids. I'm like, I want I want to feel this. I want to feel this. And one of the pastors on the staff of this mega church that was experiencing this revival came up to me and put his hand on my head and he pushed so hard and I was standing up going, this is not cool. And I didn't fall. Dang it. So I told you my theory about slain in the spirit. No hypnosis. Mm -hmm. And I, the reason, the reason I really think that did I tell you about Austin? No, we were in Austin, Texas, for the liturgist gathering, uh -huh. and I decided to help people understand consciousness through hypnosis. Oh, you hypnotized the whole group, didn't you? I started to hypnotize the room, and some of the room went too deep, too fast, and people fell down. And someone tweeted, "Science Mike is out here slaying people in the spirit." <laughs> well, I mean, I've had spiritual experiences, and I understand uh, the the joy of those, but they they they're given too much wait yes although they're wonderful different but there's so many different kinds some of the most beautiful moments i've had spiritually is the awareness and the presence betsy's talking about even though i've had like mystical experiences where i've seen things and, and heard voices or whatever and also don't miss that there's a neurological component to this i don't want to over spiritualize it because i'm speaking on behalf of my beloved neuroscience right now but if the Bible talks about us having different gifts, that's not wildly unscientific. Different brains are prone to process spiritual experiences in different ways. And at least you will probably find great joy focusing on those that come most naturally to you. Oh, absolutely. As I opposed mean, to chasing the ones that don't. An art gallery and looking at a painting that just captures you and doesn't let you go. That's a spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Oriel says for those of us survivors of spiritual trauma and abuse, 
who are finally learning to take care of ourselves and have stepped away from our church roots and are finally finding spiritual practice to be necessary and communities to be essential, but are reticent to go back to any of the Christian places of worship and community and have begun to develop our own routines or practices. But we need more options and would like community, even with friends who are evangelical. Wow, quite a sentence, my man. Uh, How do we move forward in relationships with folks who seem to think that the traditional way of doing spirituality is the way and that our lives are going to suffer without it? That's all one sentence. Similarly, how do we engage and live out community and intimacy with those individuals and spiritual groups who tend to be more blue, that's a spiral dynamics term, meaning traditional, and even red, meaning uh, needing ego validation through power, and their approach to community or relationships when we are green or orange. Green meaning basically uh, hippies, or orange meaning scientifically minded. Had to do a little translation layer there. (laughs) Somebody really into spiral dynamics, I see. Well... That's for you to answer. That's, that's a heck of a question. <laughs> Don't talk about religious things. I mean, I, I spent last weekend at a music festival, I, you know, great music, um, camping with friends. We were united around the music and the experience of camping. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't want to get into religion or politics with those folks, but I'd want to but I really enjoyed their company and the laughter and the joy of the music and the dancing. So, I mean, I don't know that you have to get along with people that are so different from you around the differences. Are there things that you can do that um, unite you? And I know this sounds cynical, but why do you want to? (laughs) It's usually family. It's usually family, right? It's we've moved on and, and my mother or my grandmother are heartbroken. That's part of your story. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of friends I have who the only conversation we could have was how I was going to hell if I didn't change my ways. That's not a friendship. That's no. not a family relationship. So right, right. love you. Call me if you ever change your mind. Yeah, for friends. But you still had to go to Christmas dinner. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You still have to go to Christmas dinner. So you go to Christmas dinner and you have dinner and you talk about how good the mashed potatoes are and you give everybody hugs and you play with the dogs and you get out of there quick mm. before the conversation turns. I mean, you really do have to isolate yourself sometimes to protect yourselves, not isolate yourselves from people in general, but from conversations or accusations or hurtful um, behaviors. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that. That in itself is hurtful. I know that. I know that. Yeah, it's tough. What you went through, Mike. It's tough. Or another option, uh, move to Los Angeles. I'm just (laughs) kidding. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Heiko says, I've observed in the churches around me that they are either progressive and affirming or they have people my age, youth, but no church seems to have both. Oh, you are speaking my life experience. I go to church for the community, so I lean toward those with more people my age who I can relate to and hang out with, even if the churches themselves are relatively conservative. Why is it so hard to find people in their 20s in progressive churches? Huh. Well, first of all, I'd say, where do you live? 
Um, Because I think location geography is really, really significant. Right? Because I went to, what was that place I went to the other night? All Saints. All Saints. Mm -hmm. And and they said they had 70 people in their youth group. Now, I know 20s is not a a youth group. All Saints is a real unicorn of a church though. yeah well right right i don't know i i don't i, know I don't know what, how to i know what i know you what you're know talking about. she know okay i've seen this because we sure. have 20s but in our church but we're good not, sam is rare that way I, and, this and is totally phenomenon holy progressive you have these like mainline churches the beautiful theology and everyone's 60 plus yeah and then you have these amazing rock and roll churches full of sexy young people who are Turner Burn theology? Oh, I and know so what, what you're in the heck is going now. on? I I, th- I I mean I can immediately think of churches in Tallahassee that 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 you've just described. Yes, the hmm. thing is, the twenties, the people in their twenties who are going to the conservative churches, they're a tiny fraction of their generation. What you're actually finding is that most people in their twenties, an overwhelmingly massive majority of people in their 20s are not religious there you go they're not, they're not unprecedented anywhere unprecedented level so the only ones who are are the ones whose theology places such high stakes on falling out that it's worth paying the cultural cost of being bizarre okay i've certainly seen that even here in los angeles and in san francisco two of the most progressive cities in the country so most of the 20s are the nuns right most okay. 20s are so nuns. that's why she can't find any. Uh, and the ones who aren't are super evangelical. They're very, very conservative. Honestly, I've kind of devoted my life to trying to help you. <laughs> <laughs> um, we went to a mainline church last night in Orange County. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you they had a lot more people in their 20s last night than they've had in a long time. Yeah, they did. So we... We, I'm trying to, and through the liturgist, we are desperately trying to help find those of you who are in your 20s, in your late teens, in your early 30s, who have some kind of spiritual leaning and some kind of desire for spiritual community to be able to find that in a way that doesn't re-traumatize you if you've been hurt in the past in a significant way by organized religion. Uh, but the, what, what, the reason it's so hard is sociology um and what has made conservative evangelicalism so powerful as a religious movement in america is how good it is at describing god as personal so people stay in because they're afraid of going to hell but people don't come into evangelicalism because they're afraid of going to hell they come into evangelicalism at first when evangelicalism first came on the scene because the main line presented a distant theological picture of God and a liturgy that was only made familiar through a repetition that's boring to children, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. So those mainline children grew up. Here comes evangelicals of, of the God who loves you personally. Lots of mainline people became christians quote unquote <laughs> exactly right and that was the <laughs> you, big boom you aren't there. a christian unless you walk down that aisle exactly. and get baptized again by immersion and today what those sexy evangelical churches are doing is they're taking people raised in unreligious households but offering the same appeal god 
loves you personally. They make it simple. They make it accessible. They put it in terms that someone who has bills due on Friday has time to think about. Um, and honestly, one of the most powerful tools of modern evangelical megachurches is public ambiguity about theological and moral stances. And so so that's why, sociologically speaking, I understand I've stirred a lot of pots and I'll get a lot of emails from what, everything I just said, but that's what's at play. So the good news is, even though most millennials aren't religious, they aren't atheists. Well, You're not like the only spiritual leaning person in your generation who has this same frustration. Right. And so while there wasn't a specific question about where I see the church going or the hope I, I believe is happening, um, the things that are happening, there's a dinner church movement. That's one one word. There's home church movements. I see people in their 20s, two or three, gathering around a meal and around the gospel and then enjoying it so much that they invite friends around a meal and around the gospel and they enjoy it so much that they invite a few more friends and that's, that's church. I, I mean, our building, a building is not the church. The church is where two or three are gathered in my name. So don't despair. Hmm. Find somebody else to be with. Um, open the Bible, eat some good food, see what happens. Hmm. Right? Absolutely. We have to, we have to kind of, Broaden our idea of what church means. It's the called out ones. What are we called out to? We're, we're, we're called out to help participate, um, walk alongside Christ as the kingdom of God comes to earth. My two favorite churches in Tallahassee were Good Samaritan United Methodist Church on Capitol Circle and Betsy's Back Patio. <laughs> yep. That was, yep. You got to come when it gets cold. Yeah. Okay, well, if you don't know by now why I love Betsy so much, I just can't help you. Um, <laughs> Mike, you're so kind. <laughs> I'm not. I'm really terrible. I only say things I think. Oh. <laughs> so uh, if you've got questions, uh, you've got comments, you can go to AskScienceMike.com, leave a comment there. Questions, you've got we'll comments. <laughs> we'll also, uh, I'll have links to Betsy's uh, podcast feed as well as her Twitter profile, where you can follow Betsy. I, I need to tweet more. Well, I just put you on the spot. Oh, I geez. have to tweet more. Okay. Okay. So thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> and I'll talk to you next week. 